Okay, let's begin uh, this morning with the German musical composer Richard Wagner. That is correct. You heard me right. Let's begin this morning with Richard Wagner. Now, Wagner is known for a lot of things, isn't he? Some good <laughs> and some not so uh, good. But one area of note is Wagner's developed what uh, are called musical light motif. L- musical light motif. Have you heard of that phrase, light motiven or light motif? Um, this is where uh, Wagner, as he's kind of telling a story in an opera, what he does is he takes maybe the main characters of the opera and some of the main crucial objects of the opera, and what he does is he links these to their own musical phrase or musical notes. I'm sure you get the idea already. So you and I, let's say, are listening to an opera, and we hear this musical theme. And what do we know? We know, oh, that's the theme for that character. Or we hear a big chord, E flat, and we know, ah, that's the leitmotif for this other character. You get the idea, do you? Linking characters and objects to their own musical theme or musical note. The term is leitmotif. Now, maybe it's because I'm a geek, but I think that's really cool. That's a, that's a very clever device, this leitmotif. But it does get better than that, believe it or not. Because sometimes what Wagner would do is he would bring many of his leitmotif, his, he would bring them together. So let's take an example, shall we? Uh, you've probably heard of that, that famous musical piece, uh, The Master Singers. Okay, the master singers of Nuremberg. Okay, the master singers. Now, to the untrained ear, the end of that piece of music just sounds mental. You know, the end of that piece of music just sounds, in a sense, chaotic. Or certainly there is loads and loads going on and it seems a bit random to the untrained ear. But the student of Wagner knows it isn't as random as all that. The student of Wagner knows that what Wagner is doing at that point is bringing loads and loads of his themes and his leitmotif together, that they are intertwining, converging, so that he can provide and produce an intricate, inspiring finale to his work. Right, I know what you're thinking, right? You're, you're thinking something more like, well, why on earth are we speaking about Richard Wagner? Well, think about it for a moment. What are we doing? This morning, we're ending our sermon series. It's done, finished with, in a sense, okay? So we're coming to the very conclusion of this epistle of First Peter. And from the reading a second ago, you know the reaction that this section of Scripture could receive. Do you know? People could read this ending and just go, yeah. You know? To read this and think, oh, that's, you know, not that uplifting, is it? I mean, the end of this from 12 to 14, there's a few names chucked in there, and there's a couple of greetings, but beyond that, there doesn't seem much of no, well, this is what I want you to get from the start. The ending of First Peter is Wagnerian. It's Wagnerian. Think about it. Do you see? Not only throughout this epistle has Peter woven beautifully a number of themes, a number of motifs, but 
what do we have here? I wonder if you notice it already. But as he concludes this letter, what Peter does, bring many of these motifs together. They converge. So Peter can provide himself, he can provide for us today an intricate, inspiring finale to his epistle, a finale that points us, as ever, to the salvation that is available in the Lord Jesus Christ. A Wagnerian ending to the epistle. Okay, so I'm, uh, I didn't uh, big, give you a big shout out for grabbing a copy of scripture. I'm sure you've done that by now. You've got your Bible or you've printed off the text, I'm sure. And so what we're going to do just now for a short time, I promise you, is we're just going to notice just one or two things uh, in this ending. So the first thing I want you to consider and notice is this, a return to perseverance. That's the first thing I want us to think about or notice from this conclusion, a return to perseverance. Okay, now, over the course of uh, this letter, do you agree with me that we've not seen all that many characters or people kind of come to the to the fore? That's right, isn't it, over? There's a lot of theology. There's not that many people characters who who are mentioned, is that right? Yeah, we've seen the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've maybe heard mention of Noah, the devil. Beyond that, there's not that many. So I reckon the first thing that kind of jumps off the page at us is this new character that's mentioned. Now, do you notice this in verse 12, right at the beginning? Have a wee look at it. You'll notice mention is made of, it's, it's Sylvanus or... It's Silas, uh, depending really on uh, the translation that you have in front of you. Now, most scholars, in fact, I'm going to say nearly all scholars, they agree that the person that you are dealing with there is the same Silas that's mentioned at the beginning of First and Second Thessalonians and is mentioned in Acts. Now, you probably know who I'm talking about there. Do you, do you remember the same uh, chap who accompanied Paul? when he had that falling out with Barnabas. That's that's the Silas, the Sylvanus, most likely that we're dealing with here. So, so we know who, but I suppose the question then becomes, well, what role does he play here? Because do you notice the phrase in verse 12? Peter actually says, by Sylvanus, by Silas, I have written to you. And what you'll encounter is that some people say, well, this suggests that even more than a scribe or a secretary, this suggests that by Silas I've written to you, this suggests even more than that, that, that Silas actually contributed to the content of the letter. Do you see the idea? That he's almost some of these are Silas thought, Silas's work. Now, now, now that's a bit controversial. So is it right? Well, I'm going to suggest no. Indeed. Because you see that phrase? Yes. By this person I write to you. That's a way that the New Testament uses just to speak of the one who is entrusted to deliver a letter. You know, maybe the person who carries the letter, maybe the person who might go on to explain the letter. That's that's almost technical phrase for that. So you've got that in the book of Acts with the decision of the Jerusalem Council. So basically, do you see the idea? Do you see what Peter's doing? He's writing to these churches in Asia Minor and he's commending this chap Silas. He's saying, see this guy Silvanus. Good guy. 
like a proper guy. We can trust this guy. You can trust this guy to deliver the letter to the other churches. Peter's almost saying, you can trust this guy even to explain some of the content of this work. Okay, you with me? So we've got this new character. Next thing we should know under this heading, though, is Peter's classification of the letter. So I would ask you uh, if you would just keep reading in verse 12. Keep reading. What do you see? You, you, you see, <laughs> excuse me, Peter says uh, this letter's brief. And you, you, you're, you're, uh, you're saying, Andy, you've been in this letter for nine months and it's a brief, uh, letter. But yeah, come on, compared to Romans or something like, yeah, okay, cause concise and come on, compact. But it's actually the next little bit. If you get, if you keep working in verse 12, look at this, what he says of his own letter. He says, this letter, this is, do you see, the true grace of God, right? Now, Donald Trump, let's go to Donald Trump. With Donald Trump, you and I are used to hearing accusations of exaggerated claims, aren't we? Like, I'm not making any political comment whatsoever, but we know what the reaction to Donald Trump's Twitter feed is. You know, people are always accusing him of making exaggerated and own uh, claims, okay? Well, do you see what can happen here? Like, think what Peter's just said. He has said about a letter that he has written. He says, this letter contains the true grace of God. So if somebody new to Christianity can say, that's a pretty big claim to make. That this letter you've written contains the true grace of God. But what do you know? Like, really? If you're part of LCPC, if you've been watching these sermons and looking at this letter, what do you know? You know that's not an exaggeration. This is not an overblown claim that what Peter has done in this letter over these chapters, he set out before you in a very methodical but beautiful way, the grace, the beautiful grace, shocking grace, the true grace of God. Now, what I would ask you to do right now is just to ponder that for a moment, to go back into your mind over the content of this letter, to ask yourself, well, what have we seen? And surely the answer to that, first of all, is we've seen something of the blessings of God's grace to you, Christian friend. Think about what we've seen. What have we received in the gospel? Peter tells you, you have been born again to that living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that marvelous? He goes on, you've received an inheritance. You have received an inheritance that will never spoil our faith. And then he goes on and he says, you've been chosen. Think of it. Foreknown by God and before the creation of the world, you have been called out of darkness, Peter says, into light. You've been chosen for God's very own possession. It's so exciting, isn't it? The blessings of God's grace. Yes, but isn't it more? You said, think about it. Where else has Peter rested? Do you not remember that refrain so often he's talked about how that grace has come to us? And what's the answer? Peter, time and again, reminding us that God himself has secured for us, what we could not secure for ourselves, And you think about the language that he's used to remind you of what God himself has done for you. Yes, you've been ransomed. We didn't pay the fee. What happened? Christ. 
the very blood of the Son of God spoke for you. Isn't it absolutely remarkable? And Peter says, yes, it was he himself. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we could not achieve salvation. So what does Peter say? We couldn't achieve it. So he suffered. He, the righteous, for the unrighteous to bring us to God. When you consider the content of this letter, what do you see? You see that this classification is correct. In this epistle, we see the true grace of God. So if we see the new character, and then we see the classification, I think that the last thing under this heading we must note is the command that Peter gives us, the command that we receive. With this, I would uh, like to return to music, because if you and I know anything about classical music at all, and we might not, we might know very little, but if we know anything, we know that a lot of works of classical music, they rely heavily upon their main theme, don't they? Their main melody line. So you'll have that tune that maybe begins the piece of work and it'll go away, but it'll come back and it'll go away and come back. The main, uh, it'll be, it'll be the, it'll be the tune uh, that, that we end up whistling for the rest of the day. Okay. Classical music, you know, rests heavily sometimes on the main melody line. I would ask you to look at the very end of verse 12 with me, please. Look at the very end of verse 12. Peter says, Let me rephrase that. Peter commands us, the church, to stand firm in that grace of God, that true grace. Stand firm. And I I want to suggest to you this, this morning, that that phrase there really acts as the main theme, the main melody line to the epistle of First Peter. Would you not agree with that? Like to the... The church in Asia Minor that is persecuted. Now, now remember, this is a church that is soon to receive greater increasing opposition to those poor people. Peter's returned time and time again, hasn't he? We've heard this refrain time and time again, this refrain. Be resolute. Stand fast. In Christ, time and time again, look to the return of Jesus Christ and stand firm. This is the main theme. Now, what do we know? You and I know that this here in our hands is not just a letter written to persecuted believers in Asia Minor. In a sense, Sylvanus has come into your life this morning, hasn't he? And Sylvanus has delivered to you the same divine command. So you and I need to, to wake up and shake ourselves, don't we? We need to consider, well, what, what does this involve? What does it mean to, to stand firm to, today in, in, in this world? And, 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 and yes, I would love to see us as a church discuss that. As far as application is concerned, we, we can do that in this meeting after this video. We could do that. We could discuss with our children over lunch, with our friends, with our spouse. What does it mean? To stand firm in the true grace of God in an hostile, antagonistic environment. But to kick that off, I want to underline the most elementary point. Think about it. If you and I are to stand firm in the true grace of God, what is the first thing we need to do? If we're to stand fast in the truths that Peter set out here, the first thing we need to do is make sure that we are well-versed 
in the contents of this epistle. You see that, don't you? If we're to stand fast and the truths of Peter set out, we need to know this. See, I have sat where you're sitting just now. I've been on the receiving end of a sermon series, of course, a hundred thousand times, and I know what it is like. I know we can get to the end of a sermon series, and the truth is that sometimes we cannot see the wood for the trees. Isn't that right? You know, lots of sermons over the course of a long period of time, and these New Testament epistles can be really quite dense, and at the end of it, it can become a blur. But we can do something about that, and it might sound counterintuitive, but I want you to hear the appeal. Today, let's not take today as the end of our studies in First Peter. But let's view today as the beginning of a new relationship with this book. Did you hear that? Let's not. I mean, you can see it. The normal temptation, you finish a sermon series, and what do you think? You think, okay, that's First Peter done. I'll maybe come back to that in a couple of years' time. Well, today, let's not regard this as the end of the sermon series, the end of our studies. Let's regard it as a new beginning, a new relationship. What do I mean? Let's this week go back to this letter. Let's read it this week. Let's think about all that we have absorbed in this sermon series. Let's study it. I would suggest that we take this epistle and we use the language of this epistle to inform how we pray, especially how we pray in adoration and praise of God, that we use this epistle now. After spending such time in it, we use it to shape our devotional lives. And why? Because here today, God commands us to stand firm in the truths that Peter has laid out before you. And if we are going to do that, we, of course, need to know what those truths are. But we also need to take them to heart. So we see a return to perseverance. A second thing uh, we note here, or we should note here, is a requirement of love. A requirement of love. Now, um, in my time at LCPC, so that's over eight years, we've studied a, a number of the New Testament epistles. And uh, every time that we have uh, done that, we've noted and we've talked about the fact that there were conventions expected in letter writing in the first century world. So just this, how do you begin your, your emails? Is it hi or is it dear? I suppose it depends who you're writing to, doesn't it? But we all do that and we all end with your sincerely or warm regards or every blessing. So we have conventions in communication. It was the same in the ancient world. Well, one such convention that existed was the idea of bringing greetings to the recipient and greetings from the people who were in your company at the time. Okay, you get the idea? You get the I know you get the idea because you and I do the same thing. So let's say I was emailing you this afternoon. I might say at the end of the email, oh, and Catherine and the kids, they say hi. Or Catherine and the kids, they send their love. It's the same idea, isn't it? The idea of bringing or sending greetings to the recipient from the people who, you, who were in your midst. Okay, now, Peter here, he brings or he sends greetings from a, 
we'll, yeah, we'll call them two companions. But if you look with me to verse 13, you'll see that the first of these is far from straightforward. So please, I'll, I'll give you a second to find it. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Do you see what it is? So he sends greetings from she who is at Babylon. All right, you got it? She who is at Babylon. Now, maybe you can see what happens with that idea. So some people, some really bright people as well, uh, they will suggest a couple of things about that. They'll suggest, oh, this tells us that Peter was writing from the ancient Mesopotamian city of Babylon and that the she who is with him, that must be his wife. Okay, so you got the idea? We'll hear this from scholars and commentators. Peter's in the ancient city of Babylon, and he's sending greetings from his spouse. Do you see any problem with that, friend? We know that that is nonsense. Why? Because not only was Babylon a way that the New Testament very often figuratively speaks about Rome, because of the decadence and the immorality of the capital of the Roman Empire. Not only is that the case, who's the she? This female personification is a way that the New Testament very, very often speaks about the church. Second John 1, the church is the chosen lady, the elect lady of God. How many times in the New Testament do we see the church portrayed as the bride of Christ? So do you actually see what's happening here? So Peter is writing, he is bringing greetings from his fellow believers, his brothers and sisters in Christ, where? In the capital of the Roman Empire. He's sending greetings from the church in Rome. Okay, so we've got the first of his companions. For the second of his companions, can I ask you to look to the end of verse 13? Let's have a look at the other one. Do you see it? So Peter also sends greetings from, from who? From Mark? Yes, Mark, John Mark. So the author of the gospel of Mark. It's the same guy and a, a very close friend of Peter. Now, what do you think about this mention of Mark? What do you think? Do you agree? There's lots of things that we could, we could do, I think. Like we could try, I guess, we could try and track Mark's movements. Like what has brought him to be in Rome with Peter? That would be an interesting thing to do. We could also think through, uh, what was his role in the church? I'd love to know more about that. You know, what was Mark doing in the life of the church in Rome? And now all of that is fine, but actually, that's not what I want us to do. I want you to notice, to linger on the description of Mark, the term that Peter uses. What does Peter call him? Do you see it? Mark, my son. Not the idea of a blood relation, of course, but the idea of this great bond. Peter, regarding himself as this spiritual father figure to this, to this younger man, Mark. And Hang on a second, please, with me, please hang on. When you hear that mention of Mark, my son, what happens? Is it not the case that one of Peter's light motif, one of his themes 
also comes back into earshot and comes back around. Because is it not the case, if you have sat through these sermon series, is it not the case that time and time again, Peter's underlined the closeness or even, listen, the familial relationships that ought to exist, that do exist in the life of the church? Have you noticed that? Think about it. What has Peter said the church is? What is the church? Peter would tell you it is a home. It is a house. Peter would tell you it is the household of God. And then we're saying, well, 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 who are we? You know, how do we regard each other? And then what would Peter use? What term would he say? He says, you and I in this home, we are obedient children. That's the terminology he uses. And then you just need to look at verse 12. How do we regard each other? What does he say of Silvanus? Do you notice? He says, we're brothers. We're a faithful brother. We're, we're brothers. We're sisters. Time and time again, this closeness of relationship, these familial relationships. Well, if you track that and you hear that light motif, do you not love how Peter brings this to a, to an end at the conclusion of his letter? Cause look at verse 14. Given these connections we have, how are we to act with each other? Do you see what he says? We are to greet each other with a kiss of love. That such is to be the connection, that such is the connection between Christians, that that is to be expressed in a way that is reserved only for the closest of bonds, the closest of relationships. Greet each other with a kiss. It's marvelous. But what do you expect? In terms of application this morning, do you expect your minister to say, that's what I want to see next week? When we come back together, we've got to be kissing each other, kisses, holy kisses, kisses of love. Is that what we expect? Well, actually, in a sense, yes, maybe not a kiss, but there should be some displays of affection, even if it is enduring a hug, Brazilian elder. There should be some expression of this affection. But I think much more critically, I want you to hear this, more critically than that, these outward expressions should come from a place of sincerity of heart. When you read First Peter, when you see the end of First Peter, surely you are reminded that we are to be a people who must love each other. And with that, we return to some well-worn turf, don't we? As I appeal to you in a time like this, do we not need to exercise the love that must exist in the Christian community? A time where it's so difficult for people, analyze actually what we are practically doing for one another. Is it not the case that we need to try to meet each other's need? Do we not need to try and provide company for each other, even if it is virtual? Do we not need at a time like this to make sure that we are praying for each other? Because as you consider the church and these people, who are they, biblically speaking? Surely Peter would respond, these are our spiritual relatives. Who are these people? Peter would say, they are your brothers. They are your sisters. Who are they? Surely Peter would say they are your spiritual kin in Christ. 
And then the last thing uh, this morning. So we've seen a return to perseverance and a requirement of love. Uh, and the third one is a, a recurrence of peace. A recurrence of peace. So we have noted today, haven't we, that there's lots of light motif and themes, right? We've got that. But I do think that there is another device that Peter uses that I, personally I think is even more special than that. And it's that idea that, idea that I bang on a lot about and the idea of inclusio. So we've all got bookshelves at home, don't we? And we have bookends on our bookshelves. That's the idea. Peter ends, or he begins and ends his letter. So not just a section, but he begins and ends his letter in the same way to highlight some main themes. I wonder, did you notice it? You can see now why we read First uh, Peter chapter 1. Did you notice? First of all, let me point some of them, not all of them out to you. First of all, do you notice how he returns to the theme of divine election? Have you noticed that? Just as he begun the letter, and who does he write to? Do you remember? He writes to the, what's it? To the elect exiles. How? What does he say here as he ends? Do you notice it in verse 13? He speaks of the church as likewise chosen, right? The elect one. So he returns to election. I think that's amazing. Give you another one. Now look at this. He also returns to the theme of exile itself. Do you remember? Wait a minute. How does he begin the letter? To the elect exiles of the dispersion. And then think about where the church is here at the end. It's in Babylon. It's in the place of exile. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it put together in such a, a mysterious, but a, 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 it's, it's, it's genius, but it's actually the third book end on our shelves that I want to conclude with. Because do you remember the beginning? Do you remember he brings a wish, a desire for the people he's writing to? And he says, may grace and peace be with you. How does he end? Look at the very end here. We'll wait for the police to drive past. They've gone. Good. How does he end? Do you notice we have a benediction? He returns to the same theme, the theme of peace. Now, just as a moment ago, friends, there was a lot we could have done with Mark. I think there's an awful lot we could do with this theme of peace. If you set it in its context, don't you agree we could think about how necessary it was to hear about it? I mean, come on, people who are being, who are being marginalized and being sacked from their jobs because they love Jesus Christ to be reminded of the peace they have. We can think about that. We can think about how transformed this idea of peace is by, by the gospel, this Jewish idea, right? This idea of shalom now infused with eternal true meaning because of Jesus Christ. We could linger there. But I don't want to, I want to close the sermon series. Do you and I just thinking about for whom this peace exists? For whom? Because I reckon, uh, you know as well as I do what's happening in our society just now. I won't sing, but you can just think about that Coke advert. It's on the TV. You know, the holidays are coming. The holidays are... I am tempted to sing it, but I won't. You know what's happening. Our society is thinking even now about Christmas, isn't it? it really is. Some of my neighbors, 
I put up the Christmas lights in November. They put up their Christmas night, their Christmas lights and the adverts have begun. And I think you know, especially what it's going to be like this year. Like with these five days that everyone's talking about over Christmas, these, these special five days, you know, I know we're going to hear about those being days of relief from the misery of COVID. These are going to be the five days where you can focus on something. These are going to be five days of, of peace, you know, when we can forget about the troubles we've had in, in 2020 and just focus on something else. I need you to understand that is not the sort of thing that Peter's talking about here. When he has this blessing of peace, it is not the idea of us just forgetting about our troubles. It is not the idea of us, you and I, sort of ignoring all the problems. Of It's not that. It's greater than that. It's bigger than that. It's more majestic than that. This idea of peace is as follows. What Peter talks about is the eternal, unqualified harmony that Christians enjoy with God above through the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? This sort of peace, what is it? It is an everlasting peace. It is an accord with God, a bond accord. It is a friendship, a love, a relationship with the creator God that comes only through the person and the work of his son. And so I do end this sermon series in the obvious place by asking, friend, do you have such peace? Uh, we talk so often about the brevity of life. As I get older, every day I, I'm reminded of how short and fleeting and fragile life is. We have so little time. Who knows if we are well? Who knows if illness does not even attack our body as we speak? Who knows if we will get home today or, 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 or be knocked down by a, a car? Life is so short. So for you, just now, before God, how do you stand? Do you stand in Christ Jesus? If not, I would urge you to consider what Peter has told you in this letter, to consider the grace of God, what God has done for people, to consider that and to turn, even now, to pray, to look to Christ in repentance and faith to repent and believe in him. And if you do that, it's beautiful. You know what will happen? If you do that, you can forget Wagner. Because if you come Jesus Christ today, this sermon series will not end with the master singers, but it will end with the sound of angelic song as the heavenly realms delight in the news of yet another sinner saved. Friends, in the gospel, Christ has done everything necessary. Today, he stands with his arms open wide. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you eternal life, knowledge of God. Will you not come to him today? Come to Christ and know a peace with God, a peace that surpasses all understand it. Friends, let's bow our heads. Let's close this video in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for the epistle of First Peter. We thank you for its structure. We thank you for how organized it is, 
how beautifully put together it is. We thank you for Peter, for his faithfulness. But much more, we thank you for the true grace of God contained in these pages. We thank you for what you have done, what you have achieved and secured for your people, a people who are helpless and hopeless in and of themselves. We thank you for Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish, a lamb whose blood has secured peace for eternity for the church. Lord, we praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.